This is a public service announcement with guitar. And welcome to this edition of Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlick. Ed Smith is out this week. But if you've got questions about your workplace rights, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, this would be a time to give us a call. 202-588-0893. Magic Mike, the engineer, will get you on the air. Again, that's 202-588-0893 if you've got questions about your rights at work. Your Rights at Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's over 150 labor radio shows and podcasts just like this. You can check them all out, laborradionetwork.org. All right. On today's show, Movement Crystal City is the first major gym in the country to unionize, unionize, easy to say. Organizer Gus Mason will join us to explain why then. Sunday was the first day of spring. Strikes have been popping up all over the country. Johnny Callis from Cornell's Labor Tracker Project is going to update us on their latest finding. And finally, if, like me, you have been glued to this week's Senate hearing on the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson with all its, uh, I'm trying to think of what I can say on the air, not a whole lot, but um, anyhow, there is a case that no one has brought up, at least not that I heard, Holmes versus Atlanta, and that is when the Supreme Court ruled against Atlanta's separate but equal public golf courses back in 1955. We're going to find out what the game of golf has to tell us about race in America today. It's a lot more than you might think. And Professor Lane DeMoss, he's written a book called Game of Privilege, an African-American history of golf. So if you are a golfer here in the nation's capital you're going to want to tune in for that. All right, we'll get to Gus in just a second, but uh, we've got a bunch of labor headlines uh, for this week. Uh, Union City readers will know the tentative agreement was reached between Howard University and their faculty. I would think it was 329 in the morning on Wednesday, if I got my timing right. Uh, they've got a tentative three-year agreement. That's good. Uh, the bad news uh, and the reason that Ed Smith is not here today is that the nurses at Howard University Hospital do not have a deal yet. So uh, good luck to Ed and his nurses. We will keep you updated on that. Virginia, the first state to set COVID workplace rules, has dropped them. And the president of the Virginia AFL-CIO, Doris Krauss Mays, said that the state had, quote, opted to abandon safety protection for working people and that the COVID-19 crisis is still a pandemic, unquote. All right, across the country, Seattle Starbucks workers voted yes for unionization. So that campaign, which as listeners to this show know, is very hot and heavy in the metro area, including in Virginia. So we're going to keep track of that. 
Um, also, there's a potential strike looming by grocery workers in California. 47,000 workers at hundreds of Ralph's, Albertsons, Vons, and Pavilions grocery stores in Southern and Central California uh, are voting on that. And then two interesting stories are found, uh, separate stories, but seem related to me. Uh, according to Willis Tower Watson's 2022 Global Benefits Attitude Survey, they didn't, they didn't survey my attitude, but uh, half the employees surveyed are looking for a new job or plan to do so soon. Uh, and then it turns out in another report, this is by Oxfam America, 52 million workers make less than $15 an hour. Huh. You think these things may be related? I think so. 202-588-0893. If you want to talk to us about your rights on a job or all things having to do with work. Now, our first guest today, he's at uh, Movement Crystal City. That used to be Earth Treks. Um, and that looks like it's going to be the nation's first unionized climbing gym after the National Labor Relations Board issued a final ruling on Monday. Uh, Gus Mason, he's an organizer with Workers United. Gus, welcome to your rights at work. Thank you so much, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I haven't been to this particular place, but I, I have uh, been to these kinds of places. And I think you, you've got a climbing wall uh, with ropes and footholds and stuff like that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but until rec- like a couple of years ago, we were the largest uh, climbing gym uh, in the east of the Mississippi. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I if I remember right, you got different routes or routes people can take. You got the really easy ones, which is mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm basically a bouldering kind of a guy. I uh, <laughs> yeah, and then you've also got the really tough, complicated ones. Uh, you know, with the you know hanging off and all that. You know, and you need a lot more you know stronger fingers and upper body strength than mm-hmm. I certainly do. So here's my question, Gus. How would you rate the challenges that you and your coworkers at Movement Crystal City have faced, uh, given that kind of framework? You're talking about, was it an easy bouldering kind of a thing or or, or not? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> Did I set you up nicely on that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a boulder myself, I'd love to say that it was uh, easy, but uh, I definitely struggled climbing myself. Uh, it started off like uh, pretty, like we were pretty excited. Um Things like seem to be going well. Um, we're talking to folks, mostly just working on, you know, talking to all our coworkers and make sure everyone knew what was happening. And even just seeing, hey, like, does union even make sense to y'all? Um, but then a couple weeks in, uh, we started uh, running to more and more resistance from the company. Um, and uh, then pretty, you're kind of bog uh, standard uh, anti-union tactics uh things like oh we don't actually need one we're a team environment it's a family um and uh there's really we don't want a quote-unquote third party to get in the way of uh you know us talking to each other like people um but at that point we like us deciding to start uh organizing union was kind of already our last straw um for a lot of us um some of us lost our uh, healthcare like benefits um after we reopened um from our initial like kind of COVID shutdown. Uh, otherwise, like a couple other of us were like demoted um, and overall like kind of had hours cut for the first while. And then since then, we've been slowly kind of coming back. Um, business is picking up more. Um, obviously, uh, with as restrictions, uh, like legal restrictions and like state by state and like 
the area have lifted, things have opened up at the gym more. Um, but uh, the kind of resistance we face from uh, from corporate has been uh, pretty consistent. Um, but good news is uh, we're, still, we're still the ones working, so we're still the ones uh, talking to each other. Uh, and uh, in uh, November, when we did our uh, our election, we won uh, 28 to 14, uh, so two to one. And uh, though there were initially uh, some objections of, uh, raised by the company, um, we found out on Monday um, that the, uh, the hearing officer uh, dismissed those and recommended to, to the board director to go ahead and just certify our election. So we're just waiting on that step, but otherwise uh, excited to start talking to each other and figure out what we actually would like to see in a, a CBA. So the interesting thing, and we'd covered this before, I mean, like you say, you, 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 uh, the workers voted, you know, last fall uh, yeah. on, on, you know, two to months one ago. Mm-hmm. months ago. And, uh, but the company filed objections. Yep. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the board kind of rejected two of them pretty quickly. And then the third one yep. took a little bit longer, right? Exactly. Yeah, the first two were rejected before we even went to hearing, okay. um, and then uh, this the third one uh, they they considered it before deciding to go to hearing, and then we had a hearing, uh, but that was in uh, January. So uh, I think it was the fifth and the sixth, if I'm not mistaken. So let me let me uh, back up. I want to talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about Movement Crystal City because, frankly, when yeah. I first got the 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 great news that you you know the the final ruling had come out, which was terrific, yeah. but I was a little confused because, like, wait a minute, you know, Movement Crystal City, what the heck is that? You know, is yeah. that because <laughs> we done a story on Earth Trek? So, but yeah. when I started digging into it, I realized, you know, just just I was trying to follow follow all the corporate changes what what is so tell yeah. t- maybe a way into it tell us a little bit about your you know how long have you been there what do you do mm-hmm. there and and what's what's been going on at this company absolutely um so i've been working there for um about coming on three and a half years okay um i started october 2018 um as a full-time uh a shift supervisor was my job title um and uh kind of a when you're typical like supervisors in my job title, but not a formal supervisor per the NLRA. Um, and I was doing that full time for three years. Um, then uh, basically uh, when I started, uh, it was, it was Earth Treks, um, but they had very recently merged with Planet Granite, um, a kind of similar uh, structured gym company, a climbing company, gym company on the West coast. Um, so they had like, I think four or five gyms in California and one in uh, Portland, Oregon. And so we merged. And then in about in 2019, um, Earthworks and Planet Granite, um, having merged into and forming a corporate body called LCAP, um, as kind of like the parent <laughs> company. Yeah. <laughs> um, LCAP. Flow, uh, need a flow merged, chart to keep track of this thing. Uh, yeah. Oh, several. Um, and LCAP bought a movement, which was a separate gym company in Colorado, um, mostly like in the Denver area. Um, so LCAP was now Earthtrex movement in Planet Granite um, with like, I think at that point, 13 or 14 gyms across the country. Um, and then uh, around that point, they had already been talking about coming up with a like unified name for the whole company. Um, apparently uh, from what I've heard, Earth Treks and Planet Granite are were fine like regionally, but nationwide it was there were two kind of 
generic to trademark, um, hmm. at least in the outdoor space, I guess Earth and like there's the Trek bike company, Planet, Granite, fairly generic words, but apparently movement, A-OK. So now we're, uh, we've known for a couple of months, like staff knew for like several months ahead of uh, the name change that we were going to be changing it. But then uh, in December, uh, we rolled that out to all of the, uh, all the members and folks. And we're kind of still changing a bunch of names on things, but uh, we are movement now. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, yep. w- just in reading about that, and I was, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is maybe just me projecting. So that's why I wanted you sure. to sort of give me the, the <laughs> inside dope here. I mean, was the organizing drive sort of independent of that? Or I could sort of imagine that as these various mergers and consolidations are going on, if I was a worker there, that might make me nervous. Sure. Um, well, it's funny because with the initial mergers and stuff, um, you know, becoming a larger company, uh, you just have more resources. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. something's actually like something's absolutely improved after like uh, within the first like year of me working there, um, even like some like benefits improved for a lot of folks. Um, some things were work- going in a good direction. And so uh, like and, and to my knowledge, like uh, at least in my experience, like talk of like unionizing wasn't really a thing until uh it didn't get really serious until like kind of the like after we reopened from our COVID shutdown um but one thing we that became a trend throughout uh like, like kind of last three years plus is uh we just noticed uh continual issues with communication uh between like corporate and like the folks on the ground yeah. this might seem yeah. like a novel concept to you <laughs> just kidding <laughs> um but uh, just repeatedly, we like some some kind of wild change would happen. Uh, sometimes we'd find out from members asking us at the front desk, "Hey, what's the deal with this?" And that's when we found out because apparently they got an email that we hadn't been looped in on. Um, and then uh, we just would say, "Hey, uh, LCAP, uh, what's what's going on?" Um, and then you know, kind of like, "Oh, sorry, like, hey, that's our bad. We're you know, we're a new the newly merged company. We're." trying to improve uh we're working on it please be patient um and we just kind of kept getting that um throughout and when various issues kind of came up um we would some people would be like hey what's going on and like oh sorry like hey we're working on it um you know thank you for your patience um and just kind of kept kicking the ball down the road and then it kind of some of it kind of came to a head um when uh, at, at the Crystal City location, um, we found out about a week, week and a half in advance that, oh, hey, we've had masks this whole time, but uh, we're just going to not require masks anymore. Um, and it wasn't a, hey, staff who are working you know, at the gym, interacting with all these people every day, how do you feel about removing the mask requirement? Uh, it was, we're going to stop requiring masks. Um, and this was uh, just ahead of like kind of the Delta Mm-hmm. outbreak so mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that lasted i think oh, like maybe a month like a month or two um i might have a timeline right but uh then that happened and then we pretty quickly rolled that back but uh that was just that was a big indicator like whoa what's what's uh going on um we it's like because even uh when we j- closed the gym initially um in like mid-march of uh, 2020 um the company tells hey like We'll let you know, like, you'll have at least a month's notice before we reopen the gym. Um, we're not planning on, we're not just going to reopen as soon as we're legally able. We're going to reopen when we think it's the right time. And it, like, it seems 
like safe to do so. And then uh, as soon as it was legally doable to reopen the gym, uh, we found out, hey, we're going to be open in a week and a half. Are you good to go? Right. Uh, and at the Crystal City location at the time, our gym director uh, told us that apparently uh, he got it delayed to like, I think, June 28th or 29th, like the end of June 2020 for reopening because uh, LCAP wanted to do it like a week sooner, mm. um, which would have been like the following week. But he's like, look, I like a bunch of my people aren't in the area because we told them they would have a month notice before, if not more, before they have to come back. So we kind of kicked things off with that and then just kind of dealt with uh, everything as it came up um, with COVID, the reopening, um, you know, coworkers like losing health insurance. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, for things like, like we had some folks that were uh, desert, like part-time, but working enough hours to qualify for benefits and being told, oh, hey, since you weren't working the last three months when we were closed, you're no longer averaging enough hours. So you're going to, we're going to cut your benefits. Um, and sorry, kind of. Sorry, not yes. sorry. Exactly. Yeah. Like, hey, this is in our hands, but, you know, I'm going to kind of act like it's out of our hands. Um, yeah. Let me let me reintroduce you and, uh, and add another voice. Uh, you're listening to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock. Uh, we're talking with Gus Mason. He works at Movement Crystal City, which used to be Earth Treks. And he's an organizer with Workers United, which uh, the folks there at Movement Crystal City have voted uh, to join. Uh, and recently, uh, the National Labor Relations Board um, uh, just made a ruling on the last objection by the company. So we're going to come back and talk more about that. But I want to add another voice for our conversation, and that's Johnny Callis, who's been on this show before. He's with Cornell's Labor Tracker Project. Uh, Johnny, welcome to uh, Your Rights at Work. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you, and nice to meet you, Gus. And, uh, Johnny, I wanted to have you on because you just released your February report, uh, and and I wanted to sort of check in, and uh, the, the folks over at Movement uh, are, you know, they're, they're still trying to get that contract and get recognized, so hopefully they're not going to show up on, on your beautiful map, which I love, but uh, I thought it'd be useful for, for Gus to be on and to sort of see what's going on across the country. Uh, but remind folks of what the Labor Tracker Project is before we uh, we dive into a little bit of what was happening back in February. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, we launched the ILR Labor Action Tracker at the beginning of 2021 because, Chris, as I know you're aware of, uh, there's really serious data limitations when it comes to official sources on strike activity. So, for example, the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, only documents strikes that involve a thousand or more employees that last at least an entire shift which leaves out the vast majority of strike activity. So we wanted to create a more comprehensive database just so, you know, not just scholars like myself, but organizers and activists on the ground can really understand of the scope of labor action across the U.S. And just as an example, in 2021, you know, we documented 265 work stoppages involving um, approximately 140,000 workers which is considerably more than I think the 16 that the BLS documented involving approximately 80,000 workers. So we're really trying to fill that gap. And now we also are starting to collect data in uh, early 2022 as well. 
And I think it's really important. And again, this is a reason I wanted to have, have uh, Gus be part of this conversation because so many, you know, of these, you know, things that are whether they're strikes or or walkouts. I mean, you know, if you're down on the ground like we are, I mean, we we just as I, I report at the top of the show. Um, the the uh, uh, non-tenure track uh, folks at, at uh, Howard were threatening a three-day strike this weekend that it did settle 3.29 a.m. on Wednesday morning. So that's not going to show up uh, in your day. Although, as I, as I also pointed out, Ed Smith, my co-host, he's with the D.C. Nurses Association. They are actually right now taking a strike vote. They may yet strike. Um, but a lot of those are very small. They don't last very long. And as you point out, would not show up. Uh, in the official statistics, but they really kind of contribute to, I think, a more realistic picture of what is actually going on, right? Most definitely. Yeah. So a, a lot of the, as an example, a third of the strikes we documented in 2021, I believe 87 strikes were by non-union workers. Right. So these are primarily sort of spontaneous walkouts sometimes affiliated with the union as part of a, a rare but maybe increasing union recognition strike, um, but also sometimes completely independent of, frankly, labor organization. You know, there was a strike by airport workers, baggage handlers in uh, Missoula, Montana, I believe, last April. Wasn't affiliated, I believe, at all with a local labor organization, hmm. uh, but workers were really frustrated with low pay and understaffing and went on strike accordingly. You know, there was a, a almost a movement of, of sick out strikes by bus drivers in um, between, I'd say, September and November of last year, also in protest of low pay and understaffing. Some of that have continued. And, you know, even though these might be small events, they can be incredibly disruptive and they're really important to recognize, obviously, school bus drivers, airport workers, et cetera. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right, even though it's very important to recognize large strikes such as at John Deere um, and other very large strike threats. And I should mention, we don't even we don't collect data on strike threats. That's a totally different category. Robert Ovetz, who's an academic out of the Bay Area, uh, does some of that work. Um, but unless an actual strike occurs, we don't document it on our maps. So you can even say that we're undercounting the true level of potential strike activity, I guess you could say. Um, but you're right. It's not just the very large work stoppages. It's important to get a sense of those smaller walkouts to understand what's going on on the ground. Before we uh, get into a little bit of the, the weeds on your February report, let me just uh, give Gus a, a, an opportunity to weigh in. If, Gus, if you've got a question or a comment uh, yourself for, for Johnny. Oh, man. No, um, I hadn't heard about this, so this is very exciting. Um, I'm just looking at it right now on my computer. Um, no, that's awesome. Uh, nothing, nothing way off the top of my head. Um, I could tell I'm I'm sure that there are plenty of uh, uh, kind of non-union strikes happening out there for a uh, union recognition, given uh, kind of what we face. Uh, and I feel like it's maybe even a relatively tame uh, kind of unionizing experience. So um, hopefully we can figure out how to track more of those, but uh, this is awesome. And I'm glad we're getting uh, more uh, data on what's actually been happening out in uh, for the workers in America and actually globally. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's Puerto Rico. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, in America, in our right. territories. Thanks Gus. So, so Johnny, let's, let's, let's drill down a little bit into the February numbers. Uh, how many, how many strikes were there? How many folks were out? Uh, other, other stuff that folks should know. Yeah, definitely. So, so in February, we documented 30 strikes involving almost 20,000 workers. Um, 
the the longest strike is the ongoing United uh, United Mine Workers strike down at Warrior Mech Co, which began, I believe, April first of last year and is almost reaching the one year mark. Uh, the largest strike. There's been a lot of mobilization by uh, public sector workers in Puerto Rico. So it was primarily teachers, but also joined by other public sector workers. About fifteen thousand workers. Um, the first week of February were uh, striking for higher pay and also better retirement benefits. And similarly to January, we documented 10 strikes in, in education, uh, which was the sort of largest industry um, that had striking workers in, in February, which has been a pretty common theme. And this sort of has taken two forms in, in early 2022. Some of them have been sick out strikes against a, a lack of COVID-19 protocols, especially with uh, masks starting to come off in public schools. A lot of teachers are frustrated with that. But you also have sort of strikes at the end of typical contract negotiations like we see in Minneapolis right now, and I believe Sacramento beginning yesterday. Uh, so there's been a lot of activism and energy in, in public education, maybe unsurprisingly. And just another quick note, Chris, you know, we we collected started collecting data in early 2021, so we don't have the ability to compare, you know, over years and years. I'm happy to provide some historical context if you'd like uh, from my perspective. But, um, you know, we, we documented almost three times as many strikes this February as we did last February. And like I said, I don't want to um, overstate the level of strike activity. We can have a debate on that and how it compares to earlier eras. Uh, but I do think there's more labor activism right now, maybe on the heels of Striketober and some of the strikes we saw in late 2021 than there might have been uh, last winter. Well, no, and that's why I was, I was wondering. And again, guys, feel free to jump in any time. But I, yeah, that was something that I was, you know, I feel like I'm oversensitized just because of where I am and the things that I pay attention to. And I also wonder if, you know, with the social media that we have now, um, does that also contribute to just people, you know, being more aware? I mean, if, you know, if, if uh, folks like at the, uh, you know, a Starbucks in, in Portland, Oregon organized, I mean, a couple of years ago, I just would never would have known about that. How, how would I know? Right. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this sort of labor activism is really contagious now. Right. I think one of the first examples <laughs> in, a, in a good way, in a great. Yeah, excuse Right. I, <laughs> maybe not the best word to use. I apologize. Um but no, back in 2018, right, we saw this with the teacher strikes, the red state teacher strikes began in West Virginia and then spread really quickly to states like North Carolina, Oklahoma, Arizona. Um, and I think you're seeing a similar phenomenon here with Starbucks in terms of labor organizing. It started in Buffalo, but it's grown to, I believe, 150 stores. They've won at several different locations. And I should say there have now been strikes at stores in Buffalo, Denver, and Kansas City. Buffalo, after they achieved union recognition against the COVID-19 uh, protocol measures that were in place. But in Denver and Kansas City, um, there were one-day strikes uh, ULP strikes against management retaliation during the organizing drive. So um, it'll be really interesting to see if this is a tactic moving forward as workers are trying to organize unions. Gus, let me let me ask you uh, to to, yeah. to Johnny's point there. Um, are, are there other organizing efforts going on at some of the other now that you know you are part of the sort of national chain? And and then secondly. You know, are you just, I mean, I know you didn't know about the tracker beforehand, but I mean, you, you read the papers, you, you do social media. I'm sure you're aware. Absolutely. I mean, certainly being in Virginia of all the organizing among Starbucks there. What, what's your perspective as somebody who's just down there on the ground as an organizer? For sure. Well, one thing is it's definitely uh, made it more of like a, 
relevant it's like already kind of like a relevant topic it's not like completely out of the blue like a union well i've never heard of this kind of thing <laughs> like that has not been the case um and it's kind of funny because uh before we did our initial organizing uh we were actually working with um we're like talking to some folks with uh, uh afl-cio who connected us with the workers united but uh they were uh they gave us kind of a, a tip that like oh hey like uh we're, i'm gonna be working on a campaign up in buffalo for starbucks i was like oh okay cool uh so that's been it's pretty cool to see it because uh while we kind of did our election like a bit ahead of a lot of the Starbucks happening. Part of the reason that our process has been uh, prolonged is that the the labor board is swamped. Um, our, like our region, uh, last I heard that uh, they were working on our like hearing and there were, I think 20 other like shops that were filing to unionize. And then like another, maybe like 20, 30 in the wings, like waiting to not, you know, <laughs> overload them. Uh, so uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, it helps it really feel like it's not just us or we're not just, you know, uh, way off base. It's like, oh, wow, there's actually a lot of folks uh, who are also feeling kind of the the squeeze. Hey, Johnny, how uh, since since the tracker has been around and you start you are starting to build up some historical perspective here. What's your sense of how the tracker is being used uh, as as a tool out there in the field? It's it's definitely been embraced by a lot of journalists, I'll, I'll tell you, who were especially sort of in late 2021 during Striketober, um, were looking for a more reliable source on strike and labor action. Um, I think I'm hoping it's starting to be used also, and, and I should say it, it will, I think, be used by academics in more sort of scholarly research, hopefully to support the labor movement, obviously. Uh, but we are trying to figure out ways to make it even more usable for organizers and practitioners on the ground. And as I think I mentioned with to you in the past, Chris, I'm always open to different ways, whether it's, for example, linking strike funds on each strike that we list so folks can go donate. That's some, that's a goal of ours this year that we should be able to do. Um, you know, mentioning the location of active picket lines where local activists can go out and support workers on strike. But if there's other, you know, I don't want to overstate the importance of our project. Obviously, the important work is the folks who are on the ground. Uh, but if there's other ways we can amplify those voices more effectively, we're always open to uh, to hearing those ideas. Yeah, we had talked about that, that uh, as somebody who people often contact me and they're like, oh, you know, how do we how do we get in touch with with folks on the ground? Like, you know, now I, I now I know how to get in touch with the folks like a movement because I have some contacts there. But if there's somebody in, I don't know, you know, Buffalo, I, I don't necessarily have a contact there. So since you're you're doing that, I think that's a really useful thing. Before uh, we, we wrap up, I know we're, we're, you know, we're still in the middle of March here, but I know you've you know, been tracking stuff. Do you have a sense of some of the, the big the big things that have been happening in March that we'll be talking to you next month about? There, there have definitely been more strikes so far in March. I, I don't have, um, because the last few days we haven't updated our tracker, but for example, the Sacramento strike just uh, launched yesterday. I believe they're yeah. strike by call center workers down in the South CWA. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was in the last couple of days. So I fully anticipate that March, uh, there will be more strikes and workers on strike in March than even January and February of this year. And I will say in terms of starting the year, in 2021, we saw the largest increases at the end of the year. Uh, but in terms of starting the year, there's definitely been more strikes and militancy at the beginning of 2022 than we saw in early 2021, for whatever that's worth. 
We will keep track of it, and thanks to your tracker for keeping us on track of it. Uh, Gus and Johnny, it's been a pleasure having you both on. We'll keep uh, tracking both of these. Look forward to having you both on your rights to work. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, So Johnny Callis, he's with Cornell's Labor Tracker Project. You can look that up online. And, of course, Gus Mason, organizer with Workers United over at the Movement Crystal City. All right. We're going to come back, and as I uh, mentioned at the top, uh, take a look at the impact of golf with the civil rights movement. And I, I see a connection to the hearings this week on the nomination of uh, Judge Jackson to the Supreme Court. We're going to be talking with Lane DeMoss about that. But first, there's a great concert coming up on Saturday with our longtime friend Elise Bryant and a whole lot of friends. And we got a little uh, little PSA for you here. Let's, let's roll that, Mike. Hi, this is Elise Bryant. Women's history is American history, and women singers and musicians have played a vital role in shaping it. The Labor Heritage Foundation is excited to present Women's Song, 15 women who view music as an essential part of the social justice labor struggle. From the musical groups of Kathy Fink and Marxie Marxer, Emma's Revolution and Rebel Voices, to the hip-hop of Jen Dog Lone Wolf, or the stirring and dynamic voices of Bev Grant, Al Bradbury, Colleen Catal, Chris Matthews, Jillian Montandon, Liliana Herrera, Lucy Murphy, Alexandra Paulting, and Lynn Marie Smith. We can promise you an evening filled with women power, love, laughter, and song. Please join us online Saturday, March 26th from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Go to laborheritage.org to register for Women's Song, a celebration of women in labor history. Saturday, March 26th, 7 to 9 p.m. Donations appreciated. there our very own elise bryant that's this saturday we've got a link on our website dclabor.org where you can get tickets uh whatever you can pay nobody will be turned away you're listening to your rights at work chris carlock here ed smith is away uh this week he'll be back next week our next guest uh, specializes in the history of race and popular culture in America, specifically sport and African-American history. Professor Lane DeMoss teaches at Central Michigan University. His book, Game of Privilege, an African-American history of golf, received both the USGA's Herbert Warren Wind Award for Best Golf Book of 2017 and the North American Society for Sport History Book Award for the Best Sport History Book of 2017. Professor DeMas, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. So uh, I'm a tennis player myself, and so I know a lot about, you know, that the whole struggle for civil rights in the tennis world. 
Um, yeah, but I, I know a lot of golfers. It's uh, very big here in the D.C. area, uh, particularly actually in the African-American community, as I'm sure you know. Uh, and I, from reading your book, D.C. figured pretty prominently um, in, in the development of golf uh, in the African-American community. But I got to tell you, your book is just fascinating. And let me start by asking you this. You know, I was I was reading it last night. I was focusing on the, the civil rights chapter specifically. At the same time, I'd been listening to the hearings, the Senate confirmation hearings all week and sort of throwing things at the TV. Um, in, in my mind, it was just really uh, interesting to be here, you know, listening to those hearings today in 2022 and reading in your book about the struggles of African-Americans on golf courses. And these things seem somehow connected to me. And I just wanted to sort of run that by you and see if you had any resonance yourself. Well, absolutely. I mean, I I think there's parallels for sure. Definitely within the Black community, there was a lot of discussion over, first of all, fundamentally, what did golf mean? Uh, What, if any, resources should be provided to legal challenges uh, against segregated facilities? Um, You know, all of that often was generally worked out at the local level. So at times you see, well, first of all, I mean, there's just the number of key cases uh, in the legal realm was shocking to me when I got into the project. I mean, I think there's at least almost 30 really important desegregation lawsuits between like World War II, maybe 1940 and 1970, that kind of center on municipal or public golf. Um, and, and there's some key ones that, that make it all the way to the Supreme Court, in fact. But, but even those that don't, there's just a large body of cases. Um, and then each one has sort of like a different story in terms of the role of black lawyers, uh, uh, local NAACP or national NAACP, whether they support it or not, or um, the plaintiff's, you know, um, decision uh, how to pursue a case. It's just very interesting how they're all linked, and yet they're very different stories um, at the local level, uh, each, each of those cases. Let, let's talk about one that I, I honestly had never heard of, and, and, and shame on me, but Holmes versus Atlanta uh, makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. Let, let's, uh, you know, this is a show on your rights to work, so we can kind of get into the weeds a little bit here. But um, t- tell us a little bit about Holmes versus Atlanta, where, where it started out. Right. Well, it's a, it's, it was a totally sort of overlooked case, and it is surprising. Um, it emerges from a very unique family in Atlanta's Black history, the Holmes family. Um, the patriarch was a, a, a physician. Um, this is sort of a, a, a middle-class black family, um, fairly visible in, in the sort of middle-class black Atlanta world. Um, Alfred, uh, Holmes, nicknamed Tup Holmes was a pretty good player. He played it, uh, uh, in college. Um, the, the case began, uh, essentially as, uh, uh, sent around Bobby Jones Municipal Golf Course, which was the most popular in, in Atlanta, but quickly became a, a general um, lawsuit to integrate Atlanta's municipal golf courses, all of them. Uh, it it winds its way through the system, makes all the Supreme Court. Um, the court rules in favor, and it's actually the first example of court-ordered desegregation um, in post-war Georgia. So it's very interesting, I think, for me as a historian, because it really 
we don't realize this, but at the time, and, and Christmas Day 1955 is when Mayor Hartsfield, the uh, uh, mayor of Atlanta, sort of gives in and orders the courses to be desegregated. Um, and and that's like this crucible moment, right? So the, the Rosa Parks had been arrested like three weeks earlier in Montgomery and the boycott was getting started. And so uh, this young uh, preacher, Martin Luther King, is just getting into the news at that point. Um Brown versus the Board of Education, of course, the year before. But the, for for folks in Atlanta, white and black, this was like the visible manifestation of court order desegregation. Their golf courses, uh, and this was the lens through which, uh, at that point, they're talking about uh, the prospect of school desegregation. Right? They're linking, you know, the meaning of court-ordered school desegregation or uh, desegregation in these and all these other arenas to what they're seeing which is basically in, in the minds of many white atlantans hartsfield handing over the golf courses in their minds to black people right so it's just this incredible lens that for a moment in time a really important moment you get this major city in which people are uh where this the media and the black and white community are fixated on you know public golf as as this um uh, you know, lens uh, to, to to look at all these issues. And again, that's, I'm interested in that in the sense of, it's fascinating because in the Holmes family, these things are all linked. It's not that golf is, you know, not that important, right? Uh, it, it, it's part of the family's um, step, you know, stepping in onto the civil rights trail and continuing on, right? So then guess what? Another Holmes becomes the first to integrate University of Georgia a few years later, right? So they are linked in terms of that in that one family. And you think of someone, I was surprised because Constance Baker Motley, right, in her memoirs, recognizes the Holmes family in that case to integrate the University of Georgia. But she doesn't mention that, oh, and by the way, they were the key players in this earlier golf. So, I mean, there's even at the time, there was like this separation um, between those two cases, right? So it, it's it's sort of it was lost in history, but it was even at the time it was often overlooked, and and we can kind of think about why that's the case, right? That a lot of obviously racists and white folks in in Atlanta, but also in the black community, in the NAACP, in King's organization, the SCLC, there was a reason to sort of right sidestep something like golf right it smacked it, it symbolized elitism it's it symbolized uh being out of touch it's and 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 so a lot of people hid their interest in golf a lot of people you know black ministers who were close to to king turns out really liked golf were interested in integrating their local courses but but you know didn't want to be the first to kind of step out and talk about that because they didn't you know they wanted to represent their 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 entire community they didn't want to be branded as elite right so um yeah holmes is is the most visible the most important golf desegregation lawsuit but again there's there's something like 28 29 or 30 i think that are quite important well th there's so much to unpack there because you know i i, I totally and in reading your book it was just so fascinating to see you know, the, the, I mean, in fact, you know, I even thought about when booking you on this show, I thought, you know, people are just going to be like, why are you talking about golf, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and then to go back and see that these were the same discussions that were people were having at the time, you know, I mean, you know, people talk about segregating schools are talking about, you know, public transportation, 
And as you say, golf, you know, then, uh, you know, to a certain extent, less so now, but I think a good argument can, can be made that it's still a pretty elite sport. Um, you know, and so I can see why folks might not have wanted to lead, you know, right. but at the same time, it was, there's one chapter where you talk about people talking about, you know, packing guns in their golf bags, talk, you know, talk, yes. talk, and, and, and bombs. There's, I mean, so a lot of the same things, the same violence, the same virulence. Uh, and there's one instance I was just reading about where they're like, well, you can play on the course, but you ain't going in the, in the clubhouse. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything, whether you're desegregating the 19th hole, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah. It, it, and if you think about it, there's two, it, it makes sense in the sense of there, there's the kind of traditional notion of golf as elitism, right? Exclusivity off in the woods somewhere, rich people, white people separating themselves, big walls. You know, we, we see, we're all familiar with those iconic, you know, those, those images from overhead in Africa or something of an elite private golf course next to a slum. I mean, this kind that image then there's also this other issue like municipal golf, right? Which is going back to St. Andrews and the origins of the game. This is the largest swath of sort of public property in a lot of cities, right? And so historians had recognized that. Historians say, look, this Bobby Jones golf course, that's like the largest swath of public open space in the city of Atlanta, right? So naturally, it's it's not going to be this thing that's sort of on the margins and exclusive and overlooked it's it's right front and center and so you know little towns in the south you know i found a town in tennessee i think where when they go to burn when the kkk goes to burn a cross where do they do it at the municipal golf course because that's where else are you going to put up a cross and have a cross burning right so i mean mm. all those interactions um that kind of violent you know it, it, it it's it's a municipal golf course is i liken it to something in american history that's really unique we have called pickup basketball which if you can imagine is this this crazy thing if you think about it you can go down to a park and anyone can show up and there's like ungoverned rules about you play with total strangers (laughs) well that's municipal golf if if your listeners aren't familiar with golf you show up at a municipal public golf course by yourself you're not going to play by yourself you're going to be put with random people strangers and you're going to and it's and it's going to be intimate you're going to spend the next you know, four hours talking to them and playing a game with them. It's just incredible. And people notice that in the history, by the way, they said, look at these municipal golf courses. This is the opposite of exclusivity. This, this is, you get letters from people, you know, white players paired with black players at municipal courses. And it's such a meaningful thing for them that they write a letter to the black newspaper saying you know why i i mean it just it just this is a shock to them that wow i went to a public thing and and i spent three or four hours playing this game and i was paired with the you know three other black gentlemen or so i mean it's just it's just this municipal golf is so different from this world of country club (laughs) exclusivity so they're both there but they're very different things you know, it's reminded me of uh, some of the reading I've done, and I'm sure you're aware of this too, the integration of swimming pools. Yes. And this, it seems like the same. I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating history. It, it largely, I wouldn't say forgotten, but kind of, it's not something that comes to people's minds. But but even 
when you read about about you know the the golf the swimming you know it was coming out of a segregated segregated society you know this idea and you were just talking about this of having to spend time with people of another race although it's interesting because and I want to talk about this you know these are it's not that folks these it's not that the races were not interacting it's changing the relationships right mm-hmm. absolutely i mean that you're right golf had brought the races together you know from its inception in modern america in the south especially through the caddying system right caddies were okay. supposed to be young right. black boys right right so you're right there there'd always been this and we can talk about caddying is very i think very in, very different from the sort of uh the other, you know, service industry jobs that were sort of blackened and supposed to be served by uh, uh, African Americans, caddying. There's, a, there's obviously caddying represents that in the sense of, come on, you're playing an elite game, and you have this assistant who's carrying your bag for you. I mean, it, it, it how, you know, it does, does it get any more exploitative, right? Um, but on the other hand, caddying had this other dimension in the sense of a caddy was supposed to help you enjoy the experience the caddy was supposed right. to help you be a better golfer the caddy was supposed to give you tips caddies quickly become sort of coaches as well and so we get from the start these interesting dynamics of sort of caddies sort of turning the 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 relationship on its head this type of thing um but absolutely you're right that it, it the race this game was always bringing the races together it was about changing the way in which they they came together. Absolutely. The the other thing, and I just, uh, you know, we have just a, a few minutes left, but I, the, 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 the black, I mean, people know about the black leagues, you know, in baseball, right. Uh, the women, I mean, a lot of this history has been unearthed and, and it's thanks to folks like yourself that have brought this up. Tell us a little bit about the, 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 uh, the black league that was created because it, uh, for, for black golfers, because it was much more extensive and lasted far longer than, than I realized. It did. And, and everything about it was surprising to me as well. Um, so it's the United Golfers Association or the UGA uh, established in 1925. And it does not go away immediately with the integration of the Professional Golfers Association or the PGA uh, in 1961. It continues into the 1970s. Um, but essentially, there's like a 35 year period where if you want to be a serious black professional golfer this is your only outlet uh so that's a long period 35 years you're right that it's more extensive than any analogous uh sporting league i can think of in in terms of the age of segregation it's definitely national uga tournaments are held pretty quickly they expand beyond the the northeast and and they're held in california or kansas city or you know i mean in the south as well uga national tournament will be held in memphis it'll be held in atlanta um you know in the age of segregation so again you have uh uh, the geographic footprint is quite profound compared to like you say negro league baseball or other analogous organizations um it's also a very unique um entity in terms of the 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 diversity of the players so the uga will have kind of like a black country club set in the sense that there are, you know, uh, you know, 
black dentists or lawyers or their children who 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 grow up playing the game and, and maybe are members of country clubs, either black, there are, by the way, for your listeners, there's black country clubs in American history, um, or or integrated country clubs. And they but then there's also this element of uh very poor caddies from the deep south who are excellent players and and trying to play have a go of it in in the world of professional golf. So there's this just broad sort of diversity amongst the players in the UGA in its history. It's also very unique because it's, we call it a, a black golf tour, or, uh, which it, it was, but it's technically race blind, right? So um, you get eventually, especially in the later period, you get white players who are welcomed um, and, and who play and, and sometimes win some UGA events, right? So again, very unique in terms of sporting history and segregated black sporting leagues it's just a fascinating um entity and and not many people know about it and not many people have written about it so yeah something that historians like yourselves are always looking for that sort of of, of gap uh, tell us about george f grant oh george f grant was one of the first uh you know sort of high-profile black golf aficionados uh, in American history. So golf emerges, I mean, there's a blip where golf emerges really early in American history, but essentially it, it kind of goes away and it explodes in popularity beginning in the, yeah, the first courses date to maybe the, the mid to late 1880s, 1890s, and it just explodes uh, by World War I. Um, so that's sort of modern period of golf. Um, George Grant was uh, a dentist. He was uh, um, uh, a member of this sort of uh, black elite um, in in Massachusetts. Uh, he gets into the game at times just hitting, and this is also very important. We we associate golf with like dedicated golf landscaped courses. Sure. In the early days, it's amazing how often you just see golf just show up almost in the streets. Right. So, I mean, people just showing up at a park and putting flags in the, in the hole and, and hitting around that way. That's, that's golf, right. Even without a golf dedicated golf course in, in these early periods uh, you can do that. So George Grant was hitting golf balls um, ar ar around. Um, he's most well known for patenting a golf tee. And historians really credit him with inventing the wooden, what will become eventually the common wooden golf tee of which there are millions, if not a billion, <laughs> floating around the, the, the earth right now. Um, patented, I think, in 1899 is, is George Grant's patent. There's a picture of the patent in the book. Um, but, of course, he was quite overlooked, right? History, ironically, right? sort of for many years credited a white dentist <laughs> from of course. New England with inventing the golf tee. Um, but uh, the USGA, I mean, to this day, basically, it's it's uh, a settled deal that, yeah, this uh, the, this black dentist, uh, uh, one of the first faculty members at Harvard, by the way, teaching dental uh, at the dental school at Harvard, um, but it was the inventor of the modern golf tee. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Professor Dimas, thanks so much. The book is Game of Privilege and African-American History of Golf. Appreciate it. We'll have you back on. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Your Rights at Work. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. This is a public service announcement with guitar.